Welcome, everyone, to one of our rare rerun episodes. We don't do these too often, but as people who believe in labor rights and mental health, every once in a while we take a few days off. So that's what's happening now. And I have a rerun for you that I found in the archives from last year. And I think it flows really nicely from the conversation that was being had at the end of the most recent new episode. A caller uh, called in and just to refresh was asking about reparations and sort of uh, questioning how it might be best to implement a policy of reparations and, and was pointing out that for sort of logistical real politic reasons, might it make more sense to implement reparations, not as a targeted program, but as a universal program. And in my discussion about that, I, I pointed out that it's, you know, it's not just about the program. It's not just about correcting economic inequalities, although that is, of course, a huge part of it. But really, reparations is about forcing the country to face its history and to, at long last, genuinely try to make amends for it. And you just can't do that with a universal program. It, it, it won't come across. It is, uh, and what I said is that uh, reparations by definition are not universal. They can't be. So to do a universal program would be nice and maybe helpful. It just wouldn't be reparations. And I likened it to the movement to recognize the horrors of slavery and Jim Crow and lynching that is just in the last several years beginning to bubble up. I mentioned that there's a museum down in Montgomery, Alabama, all about the horrors of lynching, the domestic terrorism of lynching and the culture of white supremacy that supported it. And, and said that, you know, that is happening in tandem with the debate over Confederate statues coming down. So we are sort of having this conversation culturally en masse and will continue to have it probably for decades. But I found in the archives from last year a whole episode on this exact topic, and I thought, well, I'm not going to find a better topic than that to uh, slot in at this particular moment as it as it relates sort of so nicely, and I, I sort of brought it up not having any thought about uh, the rerun I would play, but uh, brought it up naturally. And for anyone who didn't catch it the first time or needs a refresher, here now is our episode from May 2018 on the Confederacy, domestic terrorism of lynching, and the legacy of white supremacy. Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the legacy of the Confederacy, including the monuments and white supremacy it left behind, and the racial terror institutionalized in America based on upholding its values. Plus, a couple of bonus clips at the end that I think really give some insight into how modern-day defenders of Confederate soldiers make their moral case. It's worth hearing. Now, please be aware that today's episode contains explicit descriptions of the lynching of African Americans. Clips today come from Last Week Tonight, Backstory, On the Media, The Laura Flanders Show, Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, Code Switch, and The Ezra Klein Show. 
the key fact about the Civil War. The Confederacy was fighting for the preservation of slavery. And that's not my opinion. That is just a fact. There are many ways that we know this. Uh, slavery is mentioned in multiple states' declarations of secession, with Mississippi saying our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery. The Confederate Constitution contains a clause enshrining slavery forever. And then there's the speech Alexander Stevens, the Confederate vice president, gave in 1861, in which he articulated the basic principles for the Confederate nation. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. Wow. Subordination to the superior race. That is explicit. If the Confederacy was not about slavery, somebody should really go back in time and tell the fucking Confederacy that. <laughs> And yet, remarkably, many people think the Civil War was over something else. When people were asked, what do they think the main cause of the Civil War is, 48% said mainly about states' rights. Only 38% said mainly about slavery. 9% said both. And that is amazing. Only 38% thought the Civil War was mainly about slavery. In other words, look to your left, now look to your right. Statistically, all three of you live in a country where only 38% of people think the Civil War was mainly about slavery. And on that states' rights argument, for the record, the southern states were ardently pro-states' rights, but with some glaring exceptions. Notably, when northern states passed laws to help protect runaway slaves, the South wanted the federal government to override those states' laws. So they loved states' rights as long as they, as they were the right states' rights. The wrong states' rights would be states' wrongs, wrongs which would need to be righted by the right states' rights. Look, to put it really simply, they just wanted to own black people and they didn't much care how. That's a fact. And, and, but that's a very hard fact for some people to accept, especially if a member of your family fought for the Confederacy. And sometimes the understandable desire to want to distance your relative from that cause can lead to people distorting the cause itself. Just watch as one man at a community meeting in North Carolina defended a Confederate statue by talking about his family history. My great-grandfather was a Confederate soldier. And I was proud of that because my opinion of his fight was for his rights. I don't know what his rights were. I wasn't there. He was dead long before I came along. But I'm, I'm really concerned about our monument. I want it to stay. It reminds me that I got a little rebel in me. You know, we all want to kind of be independent. We all have a little rebel in us, even the ladies. Ooh! Even the ladies! Hashtag feminism, hashtag confederacy. And look, look, I don't know. I don't know why his great-grandfather fought. It is hard to know the motivations of any individual soldier. What we do know is that, again, collectively, they were fighting to preserve the institution of slavery. And I do get, honestly, I honestly get wanting a more comfortable history for your family. But in doing so, you can't invent a more comfortable history for your country. Because you would be erasing the actual painful experiences of many Americans, as a fellow North Carolinian explains. When I walk by this statue, it becomes very painful when I think of the suffering that my ancestors went through. They enslaved people, abused people, 
for their own economic impact. And it should not be celebrated by these statues. Right. And that is the harsh reality of what was done by those Confederate men. And yes, even the ladies, hashtag Confederacy. Let's return to that tree-lined boulevard in Richmond with its seven Confederate statues. They sit without irony. This is Michael Paul Williams, a columnist for the Richmond Times-Dispatch. People must visit Richmond and say, um, don't they know they lost? <laughs> you know, when Robin Williams came, if you, did you hear what he said? Uh, no. he, he drove down Monument Avenue and he said, I don't think I've ever seen quite so many second-place trophies in my life. <laughs> Williams grew up in segregated Richmond and lived through the city's racial turmoil in the 1960s. He says that some of these tensions played out on Monument Avenue. There was actually a movement in the 1960s to expand Monument Avenue by seven additional Confederate monuments, if you can imagine that. Wow. Um, It wasn't clear exactly who would be honored. And in fact, um, I think at least one Times-Dispatch or Newsleader editorial questioned, well, where will we get these seven additional folks? (laughs) But just the idea that this was, even in the late 1960s, in the midst of the civil rights movement, that this was of potential insult to the African-American community did not seem to occur to anyone. So do you think this was a reaction to the civil rights movement? This is sort of the, the white South playing offense? I could not dispel that because, frankly, that what happened on Monument Avenue was a reaction to the first Reconstruction. Right, right. So it stands the reason that, you know, there would be reaction after the Civil Rights Movement and the approval of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and this sense that something is slipping away. The statues of Monument Avenue have stood untouched for a century. But in 1996, the city did add a statue of African-American tennis champion Arthur Ashe, who grew up in Richmond. Two years ago, Michael Paul Williams wrote a column saying it was time to remove the Confederate statues on Monument Avenue. Williams was moved to publish that editorial after a white supremacist murdered eight African-American people at a church in Charleston, South Carolina. It was kind of an aha moment. We we, we can't, as a nation, um, wade through the contradiction of a Confederate imagery in the public sphere and profess to be a freedom-loving nation. Williams thinks the monuments belong in a museum. He would like to see new monuments of African-American heroes, such as abolitionist Frederick Douglass and Nat Turner, who led a failed rebellion of enslaved people. If you're going to tell the entire story of Monument Avenue and Confederacy and, and Virginia history, you've got to include those who fought for their freedom, the oppressed and enslaved who fought for their freedom. Uh, one man's um, leader of a bloody slave revolt is another man's freedom fighter. And we, we, if we're going to value life, we've got to acknowledge that life is equal and we, we have to add balance to the story. And this South is much more than just the Confederacy. This is UCLA historian Brenda Stevenson. She grew up in Virginia during the era of segregation. 
when you look around in the South and you see the monuments and the highways and the schools and the namings that I'm saying of these uh, events, you would think that from 1607 until, (laughs) you know, 2015, that this was the Confederacy, not just from 1861 to 1865. Stevenson says debates over Confederate monuments aren't just about the past. They're also about the present. And so within the context of African-Americans feeling as if economically we are taking steps back within the criminal justice system, that we are taking steps backwards. And so, you know, this debate about the Confederate monuments really comes within this really broader context. And those monuments are a manifestation of the symbolism that created the world we live in today. Michael Paul Williams is a columnist for the Richmond Times-Dispatch. We also heard from historians Brenda Stevenson at UCLA and Mari McInnes at the University of Texas, Austin. And 152 years after the surrender at Appomattox, much of the South continues to embrace that very counter-narrative, that of a noble struggle of honor and self-determination led by heroic figures. Today, that perspective takes the form of what some historians call the cult of the lost cause, an ongoing narrative battle that mythologizes the Civil War by obscuring the most shameful chapter of our nation's history. This cult had one goal and one goal only, through monuments and through other means to rewrite history, to hide the truth, which is that the Confederacy was on the wrong side of humanity. That's New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu speaking last May to mark the removal of four of the city's monuments. After fierce opposition and a multi-year legal battle, New Orleans no longer hosts statues of Confederate President Jefferson Davis, Generals P.G.T. Beauregard, and Robert E. Lee, and an obelisk exalting the Battle of Liberty Place, a historic racist attack. Landrieu described the significance of these monuments in the starkest terms. These statues are not just stone and metal. They're not just innocent remembrances of a benign history. These monuments celebrate a fictional sanitized confederacy, ignoring the death, ignoring the enslavement, ignoring the terror that it actually stood for. And after the Civil War, these monuments were part of that terrorism, as much as burning a cross on someone's lawn. They were erected purposefully to send a strong message to all who walked in the shadows about who was still in charge in this city. And they didn't yield their ground without a fight. Protests erupted in New Orleans when the city decided to remove the monuments. Wearing masks to protect their identities, crews worked through the night to avoid large-scale protests. Security measures, including bulletproof vests, had to be taken to protect the workers who have received death threats. Malcolm Suber is a historian and co-founder of Take em Down NOLA, a group that aims to sweep New Orleans Confederate memorials into the dustbin of history. When we spoke to him last spring, he told us that their effort is part of a decades-long struggle by the black community to tell a truer story of the city. Suber traces the movement to 1954, when black parents, students, and teachers protested the celebration of John McDonough Day, 
McDonough is thought to have been the largest slaveholder in antebellum New Orleans and endowed many of the city's public schools, schools that, of course, were segregated. The little black kids would have to bake in the sun while the white kids were laying flowers on the bust of John McDonough. The black community called a boycott, and it was 100% effective. This was the first public protestation of these white supremacy monuments, and it just snowballed from there. When Suber moved to New Orleans in 1978, there were dozens of public schools named for slaveholders. Eventually, his group persuaded the school board to allow parents to vote on new names, and his group had another big victory in the 1980s. We got permission from the highway department to remove the white supremacy monument, and that monument, of course, was the one that commemorated the Battle of Liberty Place, so-called. Now, that was a brief victory. You got that monument taken down, but then a few years later, the city put it right back up, and then it was finally dismantled again in the latest round of removals. But this wasn't some anodyne monument to the heroism of Confederate troops or leaders. The Battle of Liberty Place was another beast altogether. So basically, a group called the White League, which was made up of Confederate veterans and the sons and daughters of the rich white slave-owning class in New Orleans, proclaimed themselves openly as a group that was bent upon restoring white supremacy in Louisiana. In September of 1874, they launched a coup d'etat against the government of the state of Louisiana and went into battle against the Metropolitan Police Force, which was an integrated police force, had black and white police officers. Fourteen years later, in 1871, they decided to dedicate a monument to that event. And in 1905, they added a plaque to that monument People in the black community have always called that the White Supremacy Monument, and the white people, of course, call it the Battle of Liberty Place Monument. Over 160-some years, people have come to believe that in building these monuments, they are commemorating something that is not, as you characterize it, you know, white supremacy, but something larger and greater, such as an entire way of life. How have they come to be so deluded about the nature of, of the Civil War and of slavery? Well, we, of course, know that the Civil War was fought on behalf of the plantation owners, but it was fought by ordinary white peasants, basically. And so in order to buffer and to explain to people why so much blood was shed in the South during the Civil War, they had to make a myth that what they were fighting for was not, in fact, the enslavement of African people, but it was something had to do with home and self-determination for the South. That myth grew and grew and grew, and it grew in the context that there was no real suppression of the planter class after their rebellion and treason against the United States government. Anywhere else in the world, if you had raged war against the central government, not only would you have been stripped, but many of you would have been executed. The rest of you would have been put in jail, and all of your symbols would have been suppressed. But we had the very opposite of that occurring in the South, because, as I always say, we won the battle, but we lost the war. And the war grew up among Southern historians to pretend 
that the planter class in the South, they were fighting to protect the honor of the South rather than they, they were fighting to protect their ownership of chattel slaves. Mayor Landrieu gave a speech on the occasion of having these things torn down that was most eloquent. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the scales fell from anybody's eyes if they said, oh, for goodness sakes, of course, now I understand why these are toxic, not only to black Louisianans, but everybody? Well, there has not been one member of the white ruling class that has come out in support of taking down these monuments. They are so caught up in the myth of these statues and so protective because it was their family members who paid to put these things up in the first place. And so they see this as part of their heritage, but they are so blinded by white supremacy, their attitude is, we run this city, this is our city, and we do what we want to do, and you just got to uh, grin and bear it. Remind people, what's the problem with the Mississippi state flag? It's been around not since the Civil War, but what, 1894, something yeah. like that? Yes, uh, a very long time, <laughs> to say the least. Um, and the problem with the Mississippi state flag is that part of it is the Confederate uh, saltire. So the saltire is what is in the left-hand corner uh -huh. of the flag. So that's called the saltire. What flies in the wind is called the fly. Okay. What is in that corner is a saltire. So that is the, that is the prominent feature of the Mississippi state flag. Now, the problem with that is that saltire is also the flag of the Ku Klux Klan. It's also the flag of the Confederacy. Now, there are those who have no problem with the Confederacy. It's a point of pride mm -hmm. for them. But our issue is very, very specific in that one of the reasons that Mississippi was a part of the Confederacy in the first place, and one of the reasons that it uh, held Confederate ideals and principles is stated in its Mississippi Statement of Secession. Mm -hmm. Now, the Statement of Secession... Are, is the reason why the state of Mississippi decided to fight the Civil War. And they said? And they said, very explicitly, our position is thoroughly identified with slavery. And a blow against the plantation economy of slavery is a blow against not just our economy, but civilization itself. They were kind enough to say this stuff back then, <laughs> right out front. White supremacy yes, rules. Yes, yes, yes. They're, they were not vague yeah. at all. Pre-PC. So yeah. this is personal for you. It is very, very personal for me. I think what's missing in this sort of national argument about the flag is that that part of it. Yeah. Right. And I think who is sort of owning this discussion are the people who claim Southern pride and uh, Southern heritage, but they don't hold it by themselves. African-Americans 
Black Mississippians are a part of that heritage. And what it means to them is not what it means to us. Here's a picture of you at the, at the Image Awards. That's a red, blood red hand there on mm-hmm. your desk. This, yes. is, this is not some inert symbol in your view. No, it's not. Um, that flag is a directive to take life. Um, Dylan Roof, when we were researching his life after he went into Mother Emanuel in, in Charleston, South Carolina, and killed the worshipers and people who were praying in the act of prayer inside that church, we saw that he was waving the Confederate flag. And that flag gave him authority to do that. There was a man named Scott Michael Green in Iowa, and he killed a police officer. And weeks before that, he was waving a Confederate flag at a football game. So those are recent examples. But Mississippi has a history, a well-documented history, where that flag is flying at the site of lynchings, at the site of bombings, at the site of house burnings. That flag is an authority for terrorism, terrorism against American citizens. Our Attorney General Jeff Sessions mm-hmm. is one of those who has gone out of his way to defend the flying of this flag. Talk a bit about what it's like for you and other Mississippians to be surrounded by that flag. Whenever you go to a, a pretty much a public, any public building, at least it mm-hmm. used to be the case. How does it feel? I was talking to a young woman the other night um, after that panel that right. you attended. And she called it a silent assault. She called it psychological warfare. And that's exactly what it is. We don't have Jim Crow laws in the state of Mississippi anymore, but we don't really need to have those laws anymore because that the flag acts as a proxy for those laws. If you are a black Mississippian or a white Mississippian for that matter, your response to that flag will be, okay, If that flag is hanging somewhere, I know not to go there. If a flag is hanging somewhere in a a business, I know not to spend my money there because I know I am not welcome. That flag for black Mississippians is a do not trespassing sign as as it has been described. Now, imagine being a citizen of a place where you are paying your taxes to a to a government And that government is using that, your tax money, to fly a flag to tell you that you are not welcome. And by extension, mentioning Jeff Sessions' role, that's all of us. That's not just Mississippi. Yes, yes, yes. And and here's the thing. We have been fighting this fight in Mississippi for a very, very long time. And, you know, we this whole idea of like monuments and flags it really is about who who controls the narrative of the american experience right so who's controlling the mississippi narrative are folks who present themselves as people who are proud of the flag but we're and we're up here saying no 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 we don't want this this is not represent us this is not representative of terrorism this is terrorism terrorism against us so we have been saying that, been saying that for generations. It, well, the fight against this flag well preceded me, right? What's missing in the fight against this flag, against this um, symbol and this directive of terrorism against American citizens are the voices outside of Mississippi. Is that because people, particularly up north, think, well, we don't want to be northern interventionists. It doesn't help the cause to have people from the north come in and 
side with critics of the Southern heritage, so-called? Right. Well, we, you know, you had people like Mike Huckabee when he was running for office a few years ago. He was saying that, well, if someone tried to come in and tell us what to do with our flag in Arkansas, we would tell them what to do with it, you know? But the fact of the matter is we are all citizens of this country and we all bear the responsibility of citizenship. And so what affects us in Mississippi affects all of us. And if you are disaffected because the president of the United States is the president of the United States, what you have to realize is this idea of Southern pride, that which is birthed in Southern strategy, all of that's coiled together, right? Mississippi is the Petri dish of that. There would be no Donald Trump if there were not Mississippi and the culture and the socioeconomic reality that is Mississippi that is rooted in that flat. Quick warning that the following clip contains explicit descriptions of the lynching of African Americans. I want you to define a term that you see when you go to the Legacy Museum, when you go to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, and that is racial terror lynchings. Do I have that right? Yes, that's right. So what we're talking about are lynchings that were designed to terrorize people based on their race. In, I think, popular culture, we have a notion that lynchings were what happened when someone was hanged. And of course, lots of lynching victims weren't actually hanged. Uh, They were drowned. They were beaten to death. They were shot. They were burned alive. And so when we talk about lynchings, we're talking about a category of crime committed by groups of people And racial terror lynchings uh, are murders, crimes committed by groups of people of African Americans to terrorize the African American community. Uh, There was mob violence, there was frontier justice in many parts of this country where there was no functioning criminal justice system. If someone did something violent or broke the law, uh, a group might come together to exercise punishment against that person. And in that respect, you would see white people hanged, you'd see other kinds of people hanged, but they weren't trying to terrorize the community. It was typically for a a well-known violent crime around which there was some group consciousness that someone had to be punished. Black people were typically lynched in communities where there was a functioning criminal justice system. Uh, there was no need for frontier justice. And in fact, hundreds were pulled out of jails and courthouses to be lynched. And these lynchings were violence directed not just at that individual, but at the entire African-American community. Black people were lynched for things like walking too close to a white woman, for uh, asking for better wages, for preaching equality. And these violations, these social transgressions, would be something that could get African-Americans lynched, and that wasn't true for anyone else. So when we talk about racial terror lynchings, we're talking about uh, the racialized violence that was directed at the Af- Af- directed at African-Americans following emancipation to reinforce racial hierarchy, to reinforce white supremacy. Uh, they were designed to terrorize uh, these bodies 
uh, would sometimes the battered bodies would be dragged through black communities. And I was gonna, I was gonna ask you about that because it wasn't j- hanging the the person wasn't enough. That's right. You, they they were after hanged, shot, some burned, and as you were about to say, dragged through dragged through the streets and particularly through black communities. Yes, it was uh, really quite graphic. It was quite torturous, and sometimes people would be castrated or their fingers would be cut off and this violent torturous mutilation of the body uh, shooting the corpse a thousand times cutting off parts of the body selling these parts as souvenirs posing with the body uh, as if uh, there was something to celebrate in this barbarity Uh, sometimes uh, someone would be positioned near the hanging body and would not allow the black family or black church or black community to come and claim their loved one. They would insist that it hang there for three or four days to terrorize more people. Uh, there are accounts of um, lynchers tying the body to a vehicle and driving through the black part of town. And if black people went inside and closed their doors, they'd actually force people out of their homes to see these corpses uh, dragged through the streets. And in that sense, it was terrorism. I think when people characterize the violence that we're talking about as a murder or even as a hate crime, they're not adequately appreciating the scale of it. In talking about terror and terrorism and the fact that you had people watching these lynchings, in some cases up to or more than 10 thousand people we've seen pictures of people posing smiling underneath a lynched person where's the accountability for those people who are in those photos who watched what happened is there any way to hold them accountable even in a in in some moral sense yeah Well, I think it's a really important question. I mean, I think, Jonathan, you've gotten to the heart of why we're trying to do what we do. You cannot engage, participate, look the other way uh, in the face of this kind of spectacle violence and go unharmed, go unchanged. Uh, You know, white families would bring their small children and they would lift them up so they could get a better view of this human being being burned to death, this human being being tortured, this human being being mutilated. And the psychic trauma, the scarring, the injury that does to a a normal, healthy human being uh, can't really be measured. And when we don't express that this is wrong and when we don't hold people accountable, what we do is we create a relationship to these black people that suggests that their victimization is not the same as the victimization of other people. When you hurt black people, when you batter black people, when you beat black people, it's not a crime, it's not bad, it's not even immoral. And that consciousness is, I think, at the heart of what is so troubling about our silence about this history. You know, I make the point often that the people who perpetrated these racial terror lynchings weren't the Ku Klux Klan. They didn't cover their faces. This wasn't done in in the middle of the night. They could have buried the bodies underground. 
to mask this violence. But instead, they did the opposite. They lifted these bodies up. They invited the whole community to come and participate. They sometimes served lemonade and deviled eggs as refreshments while this torture was taking place. And they acculturated communities into accepting this kind of brutality against black people. And the legacy of that, I think, is quite tragic. So accountability, for me, is at the heart of what we're trying to do. We can't go on. We cannot pretend that something really destructive, something really uh, corruptive happened when communities came to celebrate this kind of violence. So we have to talk about it. We have to acknowledge the wrongfulness of it. I think we would benefit as a society if we expressed our shame about it. And everybody was complicit, uh, not just the people who literally showed up and, and, and hanged the person or shot the person or drowned the person. It was all the elected officials who stood out of the way. It was the federal government who did not intervene despite hundreds and hundreds of requests that there be some kind of intervention. It was law enforcement. And um, the tragedy of that terror, which is still felt in communities today, you know, older people of color come up to me sometimes and they say, Mr. Stevenson, I get angry when I hear somebody on TV talking about how we're dealing with uh, domestic terrorism for the first time in our nation's history after 9-11. They said, we grew up with terror. We had to worry about being bombed and lynched and menaced every day of our lives. And it actually provokes them that our nation is capable of fighting a war on terror sending troops and spending billions to confront the threat posed by terror when our nation did nothing, while millions of people, African-American people, were being terrorized and traumatized by this violence, where they were sending away their loved ones because they couldn't feel safe and secure. And so accountability is at the heart of this. How do we recover from something so brutal, so tragic, so devastating, as the legacy, as the evidence of of brutal violence that is presented by these lynchings. Mm -hmm. What would it look like to remove these monuments? For the ones in Richmond, it is an extraordinary task. These are not small pieces, and it is an extraordinarily expensive task. And the mere suggestion of putting a pickup truck to it, you'll kill yourself. And Coleman told us that she felt like people should have it out about the statues. Let us have the process. Bring your voice to the table. Let's figure this out collectively. And we have to be respectful of the voices. People, everybody's expressing their grief. Everybody's expressing their rage. Everybody's expressing their fear of losing something or being unheard. That's really what we're dealing with. Everybody's not going to be happy necessarily with what the solution is, but at least if we know that we are being heard and earnestly heard and we can go through a process that helps us make informed judgment, you know, that's quite frankly what I would like to see. Do I think that that's realistic? I'm damn sure going to try, but I know that it's going to be difficult. That's all I can say is that it already has been difficult to a certain degree. How would you characterize what has been happening, particularly in the last week? Is this a incredibly divisive time in your eyes in regards to how 
people think about history? Yeah, absolutely. But we've never fully agreed on history, right? We've never agreed on it. And the p- part of the problem and, and one of the opportunities that we have in the museum world and what we do as public historians is we recognize right out of the gate when we, whatever exhibits we're building or, you know, as we're trying to impart information, we know there's the history itself. What actually happened? What are the documents, the artifacts, the letters, the diaries in total telling us? It's real easy to self-curate and only pick and choose the pieces that you want to tell a story. We see that, unfortunately, all the time. It doesn't make it true. It is the totality. It's almost like the Eastern philosophical statement about the blind man going around the elephant and each one is asked to describe what it is. And the truth of the matter is, They're each touching one part and describing the thing, but they are not talking to each other. If they had talked to each other, they would discover that, in fact, it is an elephant, not just the tail that might be a tree or the leg that might be a stump or, you know what I'm saying? And so we recognize, again, that we're dealing with the history. We're dealing with heritage. Now, heritage is something else. Heritage is what a community has chosen to tell itself. Heritage is that piece of this is what we will honor. And it's usually those pieces that come into conflict. And then we're dealing with memory. What is a person's personal relationship to that thing or that period or whatever? So, Again, as public historians, we know for every visitor walking in our door, that's what we're dealing with. So we craft our work so that people can discover new things. And that discovery can often lead folks to just this incredible cathartic moment of, oh, my God, I had no idea. I wish I had known. I want to know more about that. Where others are like, that's against everything I was ever taught. That's not right. It can't, And they reject it, but they can't unlearn or unsee what they saw. So the next time they see it again, or they decide to interact with that again, or they decide, see, I'm going to go and find out for myself again, they are moved a little bit. heritage, for example, um, Italian, German, English, French, in in my history, probably some African-American blood on my great-great-grandmother's side, but I'm blonde-haired and blue-eyed. If you saw me, you say, well, you know, that's a white guy. Well, okay, I, I guess I am. I mean, clearly, that's the way I look, but my history is much more complicated. I come from a lot of different countries. I come from a lot of different cultures. So when people describe themselves, white people, like, oh, our heritage is being taken from us, the, 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 it's actually the exact opposite, which is, no, we have so much more to gain from each other when we share our cultures. And, of course, the city of New Orleans, the city of that has my undying love, the city that, that, that formed me, is a multicultural cauldron you know, that produced the best food in the world. 
and produce the greatest music in the world. Jazz itself is a, is a musical manifestation of different cultures melding, not clashing, but melding into a new thing that the world has never seen. And so I guess this, the, what I write about in the book is how much we've lost by seeing the world as a zero-sum game or according to race by creating an unwelcoming environment and forcing 5 million people to flee the South. Now think about that for a minute. How many, how many uh, artists and poets and doctors and lawyers and scientists uh, and engineers left the space that, that, that we are in right now. And as a consequence, we did not get the benefit of the great things that they bring to us and, and how that was spread across the entire country. It's called the diaspora. How much did we actually lose? So I write about that in the book because people think that, you know, you're just talking about how I help defend somebody else's rights. Well, that's true. But I was also defending my own right to have access to and be available to the gifts that God gave all of those other people that felt that they had to leave because this wasn't their place. And Wenton Marcellus told me this very specifically when I was talking to him about the monuments. He said, you know, Louis Armstrong left here because of that. And I have had other great leaders say to me, I won't go there because of that. And so if once, once somebody tells you that, you don't go, oh, you're an idiot. Oh, no, that's not true. You go, okay, well, wait, I, let me think about that for a minute. And how much have I lost in this conversation that we've been having with each other over the past 150 years? And how much of my kids going to lose because of that? And so it just is an acknowledgement. And one of the things I write about in the book that, you know, you learn over time because all of us make a lot of mistakes is you have, it's not so hard to say, I'm sorry. And it's not so hard to say, I forgive you. Although evidently it really is because it's hard to move past stuff unless you get there. It is when you're afraid though. Yeah, it no is. Question. It is hard to say I'm sorry when you're afraid of what saying I'm sorry will mean, right? When saying well, I'm I, sorry might mean that you have to do something to make up for what you've done. When saying I'm sorry might mean that you have to allow people to 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 step forward when you wanted that for yourself. That that to me, I, I think sometimes we talk about this conversation as if. Nobody's got anything to lose. But, you know, I, I don't think it's an accident that Donald Trump follows the first African-American president. And, you know, if you're somebody who, even if you don't see yourself as, as in any way racist, you just have a certain amount of there's a way things have been and you liked it. And, you know, now things look different and you feel anxious and you're being told to say sorry for stuff that you don't even think you've done. That makes you afraid. Well, that, that's a, those are all excellent points. And I, I agree with all of them. But again, the, in this the speech that I gave, it, it's not a speech that condemns. It's a speech that invites people to think about these very issues. Clearly, uh, a lot of people in America, for a lot of different reasons, feel alienated and not connected as a community. Whether or not this is the convergence of technology uh, or, or what it might be, this is the moment where I don't think we really know, but we really feel something's not right. And, and, you know, if you've, Cheryl and I have five children, when you have a baby and the baby starts to cry, they're crying for a reason. You know, if, if a child is, looks anxious, they look anxious for a reason. And so one of the things that occurred in this election was that clearly, amongst many other things, white working class people raised up and said, I don't feel like you see me. I don't feel like you can hear me. And I have real problems. And they absolutely do. And it was a mistake for the Democratic Party to not be aware of that and to forget about that or really anybody, you know, anybody in America that's hurting, that is anxious. But the next thing is important, which is how do you act out on that? What actually do you do? And really, what is the positive way going forward? So that's part A. Part B 
is on the issue of race. I have said this many times, just it may not be the right thing, but you say, I can't relitigate whose fault it was. Clearly, nobody living today had any responsibility for slavery. Now, all of us have probably had, at least in the South, some ancestors that were involved in that and feel some sense of unnecessary guilt about our connection to that. Or we have had ancestors that actually fought in the Civil War and think somehow by making the the acknowledgement that the Civil War was fought for the wrong reason, that somehow they died in vain. And I don't think we have to go there. I think we can recognize that the Civil War was a huge tragedy of epic proportions for the country. And we don't have to assume any fault for anything that happened in the past. I do think, however, that we all have to assume responsibility going forward about how to reconcile and fix that. So we should acknowledge people's anxiety and acknowledge people's pain and and also give room for the possibility that not everybody that is against taking the statues down is a racist. They The statues evident, I found this out, were just kind of a landmark for people, uh, modern-day landmarks where they stood with their mother or father when they watched the Mardi Gras parade, and when they see it coming down, it's like watching an old building coming down, and they don't fully appreciate and understand the context of why they were put up or how what impact they had on other people. But when called to do so, basically said, oh, gosh, I didn't really realize I'm sorry about that. And then everybody says, great, let's think if we see if we can do something else. Because as I say in the speech and in the book, there is a difference between remembrance of our history and reverence of it and putting it in its right context. And of course, one of the great things about America is we recreate ourselves every day and we get better every day and we fix what was broken and we make straight what was crooked and we make right what was wrong. That's part of what we do and why we're such a great country. And there's no reason why we shouldn't continue to do it by confronting what the reality is about who we are and what we've been. Another quick warning that the following clip contains explicit descriptions of the lynching of African Americans. I think that exposing a family or exposing a community or exposing a county to this kind of violence is going to create real injury. Uh, there is no justification for burning someone alive hanging someone, brutalizing someone in this way. And I do think there is a kind of scarring that takes place. And that's why I I really continue to believe that none of us uh, is free in this country. We're all burdened by our history of Mm -hmm. racial inequality. It's created a kind of smog that we all breathe in, and it has prevented us from being healthy. And when we put out a report on lynching in 2015, we got hundreds of letters and emails and calls from African Americans whose family members uh, had been lynched, and they desperately wanted to talk about it. And we sort of expected that. It was much more than we expected. What we didn't expect were the hundreds of calls and letters we got from white Southerners who talked about family members who would brag about having been involved in the lynching uh, white Southerners who remembered being taken as children to the sites of this brutality and how it's haunted them. And we are all haunted by this history. We've just practiced silence so long 
No one has been willing to speak. And as long as we protect, you know, and, and the, for me, what's analogous is, is, is something like child abuse and sex abuse. For decades, children in this country who were sexually abused uh, were encouraged to not talk about it. And they had to bear the trauma and the grief and the burden of that abuse by themselves. And it often left them vulnerable to doing things that were destructive themselves. And what we've learned about abuse and how to help people recover is that we've got to create safe spaces for people to talk about it so that people can hear you did nothing wrong. You're not responsible for that. I look at domestic violence. Fifty years ago, uh, we didn't deal with domestic violence very thoughtfully. If a woman complained about being abused by her husband, there was no likelihood in many communities that that man was going to be arrested. We just didn't think it was a big deal. Our attitude was, well, if you chose to get into a relationship with someone who abuses you, shame on you. That's your fault. And police would show up. We wouldn't make these arrests. But then we started listening to the voices of abused women, and our consciousness changed. And today, even our private, even our star athletes, if they are accused of domestic violence, um, they're going to face consequences that they would not have faced 10 years ago. And this consciousness raising, this narrative shifting, is key to an increased shamefulness, awareness um, uh, about child abuse and sex abuse and domestic violence. And we haven't done that when it comes to the history of racial inequality. In fact, we've done the opposite. We've actually created a false narrative about how wonderful and glorious this stuff was. Right. Talking about the, the, the white people you've heard from who, you know, are haunted mm-hmm. by these things. One of the things, um, I just want to put out there is that in addition to people posing for pictures, they sent postcards. Yes. Um, and in, in you talked about earlier about how, you know, the bodies would be cut up. People would save pieces. Yes. Of the, of the victims. Yes. As mementos. Yes. So this yeah. was a macabre, Absolutely. brutal. Absolutely. Well, black people were thought of as game. I mean, that commodification of African Americans that takes place during slavery. You're not human. You're something else. The slave catalog that we have in our museum on display, the title of it is what shakes me. It says, Negroes, Mules, Carts, Feed. And there is this inability to see the humanity of people because of their color. And posing with these battered bodies uh, was like posing with the, the big fish you caught, the game you slaughtered, and uh, carving up part of that as a totem of your um, accomplishment, your achievement in taking the life of a black person just speaks to this horrific bigotry, this horrific disease that has so infected our nation. And it's why I think it's necessary for there to be treatment. A lot of people have assumed that somehow this stuff is just going to evaporate. It'll go away. With enough black achievement, all of these things will dissipate. It right, doesn't like work Like a that black way. president. Like a black president. But it doesn't work that way. It's a disease, and we're not going to get healthy. We're not going to get well until we treat it. And you can't treat it by ignoring it. You can't treat it with silence. You've got to talk about it. You've got to confront it. You've got to acknowledge it. And something transformational has to happen. But that won't happen while we pretend this wasn't a big deal.
I don't think the the great evil of American slavery was involuntary servitude or forced labor. I really believe that the true evil of American slavery was the narrative of racial difference that we created to justify it. We said that black people are not people. They're not fully human. They're not evolved. The United States Supreme Court accepted that we're three-fifths human. And this ideology of white supremacy that we created to justify slavery, you know, slave owners didn't want to feel immoral. They didn't want to feel like they were doing something inhumane. So they said, no, these black people need to be slaves. We're helping them by enslaving them because they're not evolved. They're not moral. And that ideology of white supremacy for me was the true evil of American slavery. And if you read the 13th Amendment, which is passed in 1865, it talks about ending involuntary servitude and ending forced labor, but it doesn't say anything about ending this ideology of white supremacy. And because of that, I don't think slavery ends in 1865. I think it evolves. And that's the thesis you see in our museum. Slavery evolves into this era of lynching and terrorism. It's the reason why nobody cares that thousands of black people are being hanged and drowned and beaten and burned to death on the courthouse lawn while thousands cheer. It's because we have this ideology of white supremacy. We have this narrative of racial difference that that victimization doesn't matter. And then it evolves into this period of Jim Crow and segregation. I mean, how could we have possibly believed it was sensible to say, you can't love that person because of the color of their skin. You can't play baseball with that person. You can't uh, go to a social event with that person. You can't go to church with that person. We have statutes on our museum uh, wall that talk about how even prisons were racially segregated. Even white felons and criminals uh, had to be protected from the scourge of integration. And that consciousness can only be explained when you understand this continuing, persisting narrative of racial difference. The honesty of both the museum and the memorial hearkened me back to the first time I visited the Holocaust Museum in yeah. Washington yeah. and just how powerful it was to be told history unvarnished and truthfully yeah. none of the gauzy euphemistic language here's what happened here's who did it and here's how we can what here's what we can do to not have it happen again um when i went to berlin and i went to the memorial there just beyond the brandenburg gate and the the name of the memorial is like the na the the national museum for the murder the, jews murder yeah, jews yeah, of yeah. europe i mean they hit you in <laughs> right. the face you cannot get around yeah. it yeah. and that's to me that was so powerful to be told history truthfully yes. and honestly yes. um and even brutally yes. in order to get you to understand yes. yeah. and so in seeing both the museum and the memorial i think that's what sort of hit me is that there's no sugarcoating here. No. If you come here, you are, you are, whether you want to or not, are going to be confronted and you will learn. Yes, that's right. And I'm inspired by what they've done in Germany. I mean, you can't go 100 meters in Berlin without seeing markers or stones or monuments right. placed next to the homes of Jewish families. And what inspires me about that is that in Germany, people don't want to be thought of as Nazis and fascists for the rest of their lives, for generation after generation. They're trying to change the narrative. And because they talk about the Holocaust, because it's a country 
where you don't see Adolf Hitler statutes, where there is no uh, effort to glorify and romanticize that effort, uh, that his era, uh, I'm comfortable going there. Uh, in Rwanda, it's the same thing. The Genocide Museum in, in Rwanda, they have human skulls in there. And for a lot of people, they say, that's just crazy. But people so desperately want to express their grief, they feel the need to do that. And I think that it's a pathway to recovery. When we say uh, we did something wrong, when we own up to our history of violence and abuse and tyranny and enslavement, when we do that, then the opportunity for redemption is born. That's how you get to recovery. That's how you get to restoration. That's how you get to reconciliation. It begins with telling the truth. In most faith traditions, you can't just show up and say, I've never done anything wrong, but I want salvation. (laughs) (laughs) You have to acknowledge this need, because it doesn't take, it doesn't resonate, it doesn't stick, it doesn't land. And in this country, we have developed a really bad habit of never saying, I'm sorry. And it leaves us uh, incomplete as human beings, incomplete as a nation. Because apology isn't just something you're forced to do when you've made a mistake. Apology is how you grow strong, how you become more human. You show me two people who've been in love for 50 years, I'll show you two people who've learned how to apologize to one another when they hurt each other, when they've done something that didn't land the right way. That's how you build something stronger. And we haven't built a very strong relationship, a very healthy relationship to our history of racial inequality. And because of that, we continue to perpetuate racial inequality. And so I hope these museums become models for what other communities do uh, to, to, to look more honestly at our past. We've just heard clips today, starting with last week tonight, laying out the facts of slavery's central role in the Civil War. Backstory discussed the avenue of second-place trophies in Richmond, Virginia. On the Media spoke with the co-founder of Take'em Down NOLA about some of the history of the monuments to white supremacy in New Orleans. The Laura Flanders Show talked about the problem with the Mississippi State flag. Then on Cape Up, Jonathan Capehart interviewed Brian Stevenson about the racial terrorism of lynching. Code Switch discussed the process of hearing everyone out, dealing with everyone's grief and anger, and trying to come to conclusions about how we remember our history. Ezra Klein then spoke with Mitch Landrieu, former mayor of New Orleans, about understanding the debate over Southern culture. And finally, we just heard another set of clips from the Brian Stevenson interview on Cape Up about the ongoing burden of the disease of white supremacy. And let me just implore you now to go and listen to that entire interview. As a general rule, every time you get the chance to hear Brian Stevenson speak, you should take the time to listen. Again, the show is called Cape Up, and the Brian Stevenson episode is from April 24th, 2018. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing, and I'm going to skip voicemails today because I have a couple of bonus clips for you. Uh, I'm going to play this one first. It is going to uh, be apparent right away that it is not like the others, and it's going to give us a lot to talk about afterward. I went to see great works of art before barbarians who cannot even recognize great works of art destroy them. Frank Ernest is not involved with the Richmond Monument Commission, but he's from the Virginia chapter of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, 
He's the spokesman of the chapter. Can you just tell us what the Sons of Confederate Veterans is? Yes, and uh, if you will, it's very, it's very easy what we are. We are the male descendants of the Confederate Army and Navy, all Confederate force, military force. My great-great-grandfather rode under General Jeb Stuart with the 9th Virginia Cavalry. I just discovered that I knew my wife's ancestor rode with the 2nd North Carolina, but as it turns out, those two units were in the same, under the same command, and, and so our great-grandfathers fought beside each other at Gettysburg. In our conversation with Frank Ernest, he threw a lot of history at us, a certain version of history. Frank, lots of people... They use the phrase Southern heritage and that, you know, they're defending Southern heritage and not white supremacy. They they tend to make a distinction. So can you explain what Southern heritage means to you? Well, absolutely. I mean, the reason that they say Southern heritage means keeping slaves. I mean, that's what I've heard. And no, it doesn't. It's a much more political answer than that. This turmoil, North and South, had been coming. It had a lot of things that it was over. This country was founded twice. It was founded in 1607 by people from Great Britain who were mainly Irish, Scottish, Welsh, the Celts. It was founded again in 1620 in Plymouth, Massachusetts by the English. We still call that New England. The X on our battle flag, the flag that upsets everybody so much, when it was originated, came from the cross of St. Andrew of Scotland. We have always had a balancing act between North and South that boiled over in 1861. Was slavery more fuel on the already burning fire? Absolutely, I agree. It was definitely a cause. But the fire was already there before you threw more fuel onto it. So the question I have for you is, what Southern heritage should mean for the many, many Black people in the South? What they should understand is, like I said, when you go back, our ancestors were primarily Celtic, Scottish, Irish, and Welsh. We have a different lifestyle than the North always have had. We would have had a different set of lifestyle with or without slaves. Slavery is a bad stain on all of America. But Southern heritage is not slavery to us. It is the lifestyle that we have in the South that's different. And everybody to this day says, you know, we do things at a slower pace. We, we talk differently. We eat different foods. It is. It's a culture, just like the black culture or any other culture. And these men to us are men who defended that culture and that heritage, not men who fought to keep slavery. If I had a forebearer who was complicit or involved in something heinous, I don't know if I would necessarily feel... And I know what you're saying, and I, and I understand. I do. I want to understand where you're coming from. But you must understand that there were hundreds of thousands of people involved on both sides of that war. Hundreds of thousands of people died, and, and any scholar or anyone, whether they agree with me or not, will tell you that at best, 6% of the South at that time were rich slave owners. I just cannot believe that my ancestors, the ones that owned no slaves or anybody's ancestors, could be brought to a frenzy where they would go and, and die the way they did and, and and 14-year-old boys and 60-year-old men and almost the entire population of the South, to me it's ludicrous to say that they, I agree with you, I don't think they would have fought for that. How could I defend men who would fight for this? I don't. I defend men who I don't think did fight for that. Okay, so as I said, this gives me a lot that I want to talk about, uh, but the primary thing is what we heard right at the end, basically the economic argument that 
because, and I'm just going to take his numbers for granted. So taking his point at face value that a, a very small percentage of Southerners own slaves, therefore it is basically ludicrous to imagine that non-slave owning Southerners could, as he sort of phrased it, be whipped into a frenzy to go fight a war in support of an institution that they do not personally directly benefit from. And I don't think I had ever heard that argument before. Don't get me wrong. I don't think it's a good one, mostly because it's super, super simplistic. So it's not that it doesn't appear to make some version of sense, but it really just doesn't take into consideration any other aspects of human psychology, the history of how wars have been fought and ginned up by the rich, which then are fought by the poor throughout human history. Like, it just doesn't take into consideration anything. So, the argument I don't think is good, but I do think it's really important to know that that's the argument that they make. As I said, I had never heard it before, at least not that I knew of. Maybe many of you had. Maybe this is old hat and, and I'm you know coming late to the party. But I want to play one more clip for you that touches on this, but it's coming from the other perspective. It's it's the continuation of the uh, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver clip that was in the show today, but I cut off this last bit. So let's hear that clip and then I'll come back and talk more. If you want to see a perfect crystallization of what happens when two people have wildly different views of the same symbol, just watch this local news clip. Why do you carry that flag? Because this is my heritage. My family fought to save their farm under this flag. Who was working that farm? <laughs> Ooh, that is a good, tough question. And the news clip actually cut out there, but we were so intrigued to find out what his response was, we tracked it down. And whatever you are expecting, you're going to be surprised. <laughs> Who was working that farm? My, My family was. Worked. Who was working the farm? They were poor. Do you know how much a slave cost back then? Whoa, 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 whoa. You know you are in the wrong when you decide your best argument is screaming at a black man. Do you know how expensive you used to be? It is, it is comments like that one that landed this guy on the cover of Holy Shit, That Is Not Remotely The Point magazine. Okay, so to be clear, that uh, John Oliver clip is from last October, and I had heard it before, I heard it months ago, and when I heard it the first time, I heard it and laughed at it in exactly the way they intended to point out and, and poke fun at this guy who seems to be backed into such a rhetorical corner that all he can think to do is lash out and say how expensive slaves were, and so now the really ironic part is that John's final joke in, in that segment is about the guy, the, the white guy, completely missing the point. And now, having more recently heard the uh, the, the code switch clip with the interview uh, with the spokesman from the Sons of the Confederates, I think the reverse is true. I think John is the one who completely missed the point on what that guy was saying. Again, it's not a good argument. If I'm giving him every benefit of the doubt, what I assume the point that he was making was, it is not a good point. 
but it is a point. It is something that could actually be addressed directly rather than just dismissing it out of hand or laughing at it or misinterpreting it entirely. So my understanding is that in that guy's answer to the question, who was working the farm, his answer was, my family was. And then he says, do you have any idea how expensive slaves were back then? And so... Again, giving him all the benefit of the doubt and just trying to guess at, at where he was headed with his argument, his point was, no, 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 we weren't one of the rich slave-owning families. We were the poor ones. We didn't have slaves. We weren't fighting the war for slavery. We were fighting the war for our own farm to protect our own land, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, again, I don't think it's a good argument. Uh, John actually points out in the show, look, of course, you can't possibly know what any individual's motivation was, but it's clear what the overall motivation for secession was, and it's clear that there are factors at play that would actually whip poor white Southerners who don't own slaves into a frenzy to go to war in defense of an economic and immoral system that they don't personally directly benefit from because they benefit from it in the other way that white supremacy helps them benefit from it. They benefit by feeling superior to someone who they very much want to feel superior to. They get to indulge in this made-up system of white supremacy that makes them feel that even though they're poor, at least they're not black. And look, maybe they won't always be poor, and then they could buy a slave for themselves too, you know? It, to say that because you don't currently own a slave, you wouldn't support the system of slavery or enough to go to war over it, but, you know, this sort of thing happens all the time. That's like saying poor people wouldn't be in favor of tax cuts for rich people. Well, if they think maybe one day I'll be rich and I need to benefit from those tax cuts later, well, then they sure as hell might uh, support that now. So maybe you think, hey, I'm, I, I don't own a slave now, but I'm going to. So I certainly don't want to get rid of the system now. But I, I think that's a, a side issue, to, to be honest. The biggest thing, this is what Brian Stevenson uh, talked at length about. This is why I said that you should listen to everything he says whenever you have the chance, that white supremacy, the the structural uh, social system that was used to explain slavery is the real problem. That is what would whip people into a frenzy to go to war because they didn't frame slavery very much as an economic argument at the time, maybe partially, but they framed it as a moral argument. They framed it as these creatures aren't human. We're doing them a favor by keeping them enslaved. It's their natural place in society to be enslaved because, as we heard today, people don't want to feel bad about a system they indulge in, so they have to rationalize it. So the reason why someone would go to war over white supremacy is because to not be willing to go to war over it may end up facing themselves with the conundrum of having to admit that they weren't right to support it in the first place. 
And that definitely makes them the bad guy. So again, that argument that they're making that non-slave owning Southerners wouldn't possibly go to war, it'd be ludicrous to think that they would, is not a good argument. But it's important to know that that's where they're basing their moral argument, their moral perception that allows them to say that slavery is a stain on the history of the country and support the Confederacy and the Confederate soldiers and the individuals and their family members and all of that, the moral crux of their argument is the idea that, no, they wouldn't have. I can't imagine that a non-slave owner would go and fight to uphold white supremacy. So if we know that that's the crux of their argument, then you know how to address it. And uh, unfortunately, I, th I think that that last week tonight clip didn't do a good job of addressing it because, to be honest, they might have missed it. They might not have realized that that was the argument being made. So in terms of how to talk to people and how to make these arguments and how to make progress, like I think you could have a conversation with a Southern Confederate supporting conservative and agree with them that a poor person shouldn't, wouldn't go to war specifically to uphold slavery when they don't even have slaves and don't really have a dog in the fight. You can agree with that premise and pivot and say, but that's not really what it's about. It's not really about the economic system of slavery. You have to understand that there was a moral underpinning to the economic system of slavery. And it's the moral underpinning that is always what's going to drive people to go to war. People don't go to war too often for economics. Rich people do. Rich people send poor people to war for economic reasons. But poor people go to war because going to war is in line with their moral values. And that's what happened in the Civil War. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on this or anything else. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. 